The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, I want to get right into our message tonight, so if you'll take your Bible and open to 1 Peter chapter 1. Our study this evening is part number two of the message I started last week, and we're speaking on the subject of living in obedience, which is, of course, uh, part of our series on living for Jesus. And I think what we do here in Brian Baptist is we do follow the biblical pattern for preaching the Word of God. The Apostle Paul, in his preaching, you've heard me say this before, that he always started with a doctrinal section, and then he would follow that up with a practical section where you take the doctrine and you put it into practice in your everyday life. Now, what you've heard me do for, for many years as pastor of the church is preach doctrine. I, I preach doctrine all the time, and uh, you may think I'm short on application. So this series is to help you catch up a little bit on the application of things, and maybe that'll help you to be happy. There is actually little lasting effect to doctrine if all that you ever do is pursue doctrine as a academic pursuit. I mean, if you want to find out what's in the Word of God, that's a wonderful thing. You really ought to read and study the Word of God, find out what's in there. But that's all, if that's all that you're after, it's a good thing to learn the Word of God, but if that's all you're after, then you haven't gone far enough. When you read the Word of God, it needs to make a change in you. It needs to change your life and make you a different person than you were before. And this is essentially what we're talking about here as we speak on the doctrine of obedience and talking about applying uh, scriptures in our lives to be obedient Christians, uh, the word of God is to change us and to sanctify us. Now, if you look in the text here at 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse number 13, it says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope unto the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. We find the quest... For the Christian life in verse number 14, that we are to be obedient children. We're not to live our lives in our former sins. Now, a true believer is always a changed person. One who has trusted Christ always becomes a different person, and that's because the old way of life has been replaced with a new way of living. Now, Paul wrote about the before picture he said that we used to be, we were the slaves of sin. He says we were slaves of unrighteousness. And the after picture that he gives is one still of slavery. We are still slaves, but slaves of a much different kind, uh, an opposite kind, where we're actually slaves of righteousness, not unrighteousness, which means, of course, that we become the slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm very well aware that there are some people who don't like that term, slave. That, that sort of turns them off. But that's okay if you don't like it. Um, I don't care what you think about it. Neither does God. Uh, he's the one that said this, not me. But this is exactly where we're headed when we talk about these things. That we are slaves to the master, and that master is Jesus Christ, and we are obligated to do everything the master tells us to do. Now, as a very brief review from the last message, we learned that Christian obedience is a Trinitarian doctrine, that all parts of the Godhead are involved in our sanctification, which means two things to us. First is the determination by God that you will be holy, and then the responsibility of you as his child to be holy, to actually work out the things that he tells you to do. Now, God determined that we would be holy, and if you'll indulge me just for a moment here, especially those of you that have been in the forum class, I have to remind us again of what Romans 8.29 says, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
And that predestination is part of the eternal covenant of the Godhead that was given before the world was created. And so we're not going to fail in this. We're not going to fail to be conformed to Christ. All Christians are in the process of that conformity. Now the work of God in sanctification guarantees that we will become holy. So you're never going to find this mythical creature that's called the carnal Christian. And then secondly... God's Word makes us responsible to apply the graces that have been given, and we are actually responsible to all the members of the Godhead, that each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, command us to be holy, we're to live in holiness, and so we're, this is not really a take-it-or-leave-it proposition for us, but this is all the energy of God and His fullness is put into this, that he requires that his people become holy. And he guarantees that he's going to see this work that he started in us come to completion. Now we discussed uh, two persons of the Godhead already. We talked about God the Father and obedience to God the Father. Uh, when we are saved, we become children of the Father. And that immediately puts us under an obligation of obedience. Now that's a very simple principle that we see throughout the scriptures that... that Children are to obey their parents. Now, that's a heavenly principle. That comes right from the Ten Commandments. It comes as the fifth commandment that God has given. He says that a child is to honor his father and his mother. Well, where do you suppose we got the Ten Commandments? Well, the Ten Commandments are molded after the perfection of God because this is the way that things are in heaven. There is perfect obedience in heaven, and God's word is settled in heaven, so we should expect that we would have nothing other than a perfect pattern to follow here in this life. God says children are to obey their parents, and so if you're a child of God, what does that mean? You are to obey your heavenly Father. And that obedience is accentuated by all the things that the Father does for us. Uh, he cares for us. He supplies all of our needs. He comforts us in all of our troubles and tribulations. He chastises us as a father because he loves us and he wants us to go in the right way. And so because of that activity, we must submit to him. And we're to be constantly engaged in this, in this sanctifying process. And sanctification is a cooperative effort. It begins with God. He gives us the power to do it, but he expects that we're going to actually do the work. We have to labor to be sanctified. And so what we do is we repent of our daily sins. We turn our lives over to the Lord and we are obedient to him and cleansed repeatedly. Well, secondly, we talked about obedience to Jesus, the Lord. And the word Lord pretty much sums up that obligation. Uh, the New Testament word Lord is... Curios, which means supreme in authority. And so if the Lord is supreme in authority, there isn't any wiggle room in that command. To obey him is to give in to his authority. There's, there's no place for you to move on that. And there, is, there isn't anyone who refuses to submit to the lordship of Christ who can be saved. Now the scripture says that you must call on the name of the Lord for your salvation uh, to be saved. And I would suggest to you that if you use that word Lord, then you must, you must cede to its meaning. You must give credence to the meaning of it. So initially in our salvation, we recognize that we have been placed under the obligation of obedience because Jesus is in fact our Lord. And Jesus said this, you cannot be my friends unless you obey me. That's a point that's very well made in Scripture. And if you miss that point, or if you can't understand the point, or if you want to argue the point, as some people do, then I would recommend to you that, first of all, you read your Bible and see where it's there. And then there's another book that I recommended to you. It's not above the Bible, but it's in addition to that you can read as well. The Gospel According to Jesus Christ. That's a very good book for you to read to help you understand obedience to the Lord. Then after you read that book and after you've read the Bible, first of all, check and see if you have the demands of the gospel right. You evaluate your Christianity to see if you are right. Are you this mystical, carnal Christian or are you in fact not a believer? You're not actually saved. Jesus said, keep my commandments. And you don't need any more direction than that. 
So we've discussed the Father and the Son, and now we have to consider the third person of the Godhead, and that is obedience to the indwelling Spirit. And that indwelling Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Now we call him the third person of the Trinity. Now that, that, that designation is really not so good in a way, first, second, and third, because we have the idea that somehow the Holy Spirit comes behind the Father and the Son. But the Holy Spirit is just as much God as God the Father is, is just as much God as Jesus the Son. He is God himself. So the one, two, three, that doesn't mean that he's third place in all of this. No, we have one God, and because we have one God, it must mean that all of them are exactly the same in power, authority, glory, majesty, in their demands and what we should do. I mean, the Holy Spirit is right there. All three of them are together. Now, the only difference that you actually find between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in their activities uh, in the redemption plan of God. And that is that God the Father is the one who devised the plan, and God the Son is the one who enacts the plan, and God the Holy Spirit is the one who facilitates that plan in his people. But of the three persons of the Godhead that we are most closely connected with right now, is the Holy Spirit. And that's because the Holy Spirit is here in a very, very special way. Now the Father is in heaven, the Son is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but the Holy Spirit is in the world. In fact, he is in the world in a, like I say, a very special way because the Holy Spirit is in you. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is in you. Now this is a great promise that God, that Jesus rather, gave to his disciples when he left the world, uh, the disciples couldn't always be in the presence of Jesus in the physical world. And so he promised that when he left, there would be a comforter that would come, a paracletos, one who's called alongside to help. And so Jesus told the disciples in John 14, he said, and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And that was so special to the disciples because when Jesus was in the flesh, they couldn't always be with him unless they were actually in his presence. And so when they got into the boat and he wasn't in the boat, there was a lot of problem there. When Jesus is not in the boat, they're not in his presence. And then in John chapter 14, when, uh, when he told them, I'm going to a place where you cannot come. I'm going away. You can't come with me. They were very upset about that because they wanted to be in the presence of Jesus. But they couldn't be. As long as he's physical, they can't be in his presence. And so Jesus promised that there would be a much better relationship, that he would be in them in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now mark this well, that the scriptures call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. So the Holy Spirit is in you. Jesus said, I'm going to be in you, and he meant in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's always going to be dwelling in our hearts by faith. Now, first, what we need to note is because of the Holy Spirit is here, there is an effect of his presence. Now I want you to look back at verse number 15 of the text for just a minute. And I want you to notice this phrase. It says, but as he which hath called you. And I want to point something out to you here that we learned in the fundamentals class about this word called. That he said, he, hath, he which hath called you. Now that's a very special word. It's the word that's found in the golden chain of redemption that we have in Romans 8, 29 and 30. And the scripture says there that God foreknew us, that he predestined us to be like Christ, and he said that those that are foreknown and predestined are called. And I say that's a very special word because the word called there is the call of the gospel that is an inward call. An inward call of the gospel. It's different from the outward call. Well, the outward call is a general call. By itself, it, it doesn't really produce anything. And that's evidenced by the many people who hear the gospel of Christ and yet they don't believe. Uh, they never come to saving faith. But there is an inward call that's issued by the Holy Spirit, and that call is different. And this is not a general call. This is a particular call, and it always produces a certain result. 
And we see that result in Romans 8.30, where it says that the ones who are called are justified. So we're talking here about a distinguishing call, a separating call from those that otherwise hear the gospel. And this is one of the scriptures where we derive our belief in the effectual grace of God. Now, some call that irresistible grace, but effectual is a better word. This is a call that always results in justification and then finally in our glorification. Now, that meaning is backed up right here in this text of 1 Peter 1 verse 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. And so you see the call that it's talking about here is a call that has resulted in salvation. Now, these people are ones that have been justified, and they've, they're encouraged to go forward in their sanctification. Now, it's evident Peter can't be talking to unbelievers here because he could never encourage an unbeliever to be holy. Not, not them, because they haven't received an inward effectual call of the Spirit. So he's got to be talking about people here who have received an inward call, the effectual call that's brought them to Christ, and now they have the grace of salvation in them, and it's possible for them to actually be holy. Nobody else has the capability of being holy. And so the calling here has to be something that has resulted in a definite thing, and that calling is to salvation. And those who have been called in this way come to Christ in salvation. Now, you see, we're not off base when we preach the effectual grace of God. That's as real as it can be. And we see it in the passage here, even though there are many that deny that it's not true. Now, going on, we're, we're given the Holy Spirit as an abiding presence, and we're to be obedient to the direction that the Spirit leads. Now, here it's very helpful for us to look at another scripture. You're familiar with this. Ephesians 5, verse number 18. It says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. I wish I had time for a full exposition of this verse. This is not a scripture about whether it is or is not right to drink alcohol. The answer to that question is very easy. The answer is no. It's not right. And this scripture does give us an opportunity, though, to discuss that very important topic about whether Christians ought to drink alcohol. Now, many Christians, and I, I'm throwing this in as extra, because if we're going to live in obedience to Christ, we have to know things like this. And Christians are confused about things like this. Many are confused about alcohol, and you need to get that confusion cleared up if you expect that you're going to progress very far in your holiness. And I, I've been thinking about preaching about this for some time, it's been quite a while since we uh, looked at this, and, and uh, maybe it's time for us to preach on it again. But a few years ago, I covered this thoroughly. But let me give you just a very short explanation of it now, that no Christian should drink alcohol. And you say, why? Well, there's wine in the Bible, and they drank alcohol in the Bible, they drank wine in the Bible. Well, this is a very simple thing. The wine of the Bible is not the wine that we have today. The wine of the New Testament is not the wine of today, and we can prove that, that it's not. But going beyond that, let me just say this. Uh, let, let's leave wine out of the question for a minute. You all know what wine is. It comes from the grape. We're in the grape capital of the world, it seems like. And uh, we know a lot about wine. But here's the thing about hard liquors. When you talk about whiskey and vodka and gin, tequila, and all those kinds of things, those are absolutely strictly prohibited by the Bible. Actually, hard liquors are considered to be obscene and barbaric. I mean, even non-Christians, when you looked in the New Testament period, they considered drinking those kinds of beverages as boorish, it was decadent, it was far outside the bounds of decent behavior. And so there's no way that you can defend drinking hard liquors on any level. But don't get me wrong on this, because I can hammer you on the use of alcohol in any way, and Christians are, are not to drink this stuff. And neither did Jesus make anything like a bottle of Zinfandel in John chapter 2. Now, this, this scripture then is not really about alcohol, except in this sense that the issue is its use in heathen religions of Paul's day. And this is when drunkenness was encouraged because it was thought that if you became drunk, that you could reach closer communion with the gods. 
that if you drank yourself into a stupor, that you could actually reach a higher spiritual plane. Now, down the street, just a few blocks from here on the golf course, you get over next to the uh, Doubletree Hotel, and you'll see a sign there that says the Bacchus Bar. Bacchus was the god of wine. He was the god of excessive drinking. He was the god of the orgy. And people really thought, back in the time of Paul, that the way to get close to the gods and commune with them was to get yourself drunk. As I said, get into a stupor. Now, Paul teaches us here in Ephesians 5.18 that drunkenness is not the way that you contact God. Drunkenness is to be out of control. And you don't really need to tell, for me to tell you the stupid things that people do when they get drunk. But you're not to be under control of a substance. But what he's teaching us here is there's someone that you should be under the control of, and that is the Holy Spirit. So he says, be not drunk with wine, which is excess. And there's some translations that put the word debauchery there in the place of excess, and that's a good translation, nothing wrong with that. Be not drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, that raises the question, obviously. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And lots of people have trouble with this. Being filled with the Spirit is not like being, like filling up glass. It's not like, do you have a glass that's half full, a glass that's half empty, a, a glass that doesn't have nearly enough in it, so you need to fill it up. Now, you can't do that when you talk about the Holy Spirit because when you get saved, you get all of the Holy Spirit that you're ever going to get. The Holy Spirit is not divided up into pieces. You don't get a dose of him when you get saved. And then a little bit later, you, you, know, you keep on serving the Lord and you get a little bit more sanctified and so you get a little bit more of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit comes as a whole. You get him in salvation, you get him once, and you get him all at once... And you get all that he is. And you get him forever. So the filling of the Spirit is not, not some special anointing that you get by, by speaking in tongues. It's not rolling on the floor. It's not falling backwards. The filling of the Spirit is nothing like that. And what Paul is doing here, he's using drunkenness to relate to us the concept of control. That drunkards are out of control. Or you might say they're under control of a substance, which they shouldn't be, that makes them act like they're out of control. But what he's telling us here, that we are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that's what the filling of the Spirit is. It's being controlled, being yielded to Him. And the more that we're yielded to Him, the more that we obey Him, I should say, the more that we are yielded to Him and the Holy Spirit has more of us. So the filling of the Spirit is to be under His control. You're more filled as you're more under your control or His control. So we don't think about the filling of the Spirit as some kind of work, uh, a second work of grace or anything like that. But when you're filled with the Spirit, you begin to change your thinking, you change your ways, you act differently because the Holy Spirit controls you. So it's very simple. Being filled with the Spirit is being controlled by the Spirit. Now the actual rendering of the Greek text there in Ephesians 5.18 is... Be ye being filled by the Spirit, which tells us that it's a continual process. It's something that goes on day by day. It's not being filled up like a glass, because if that's what it was and you were filled day by day, soon you'd get overfilled. And I don't know what would happen to you then. I'm, my mind's not capable of thinking in those terms. I'm not sure. Maybe you spiritually explode or something if you get overfilled. But this is not about that. It's about control. It's about yielding to the Spirit. Now, we swing that back around to the subject that we're discussing, and we're talking about obedience. Being filled with the Spirit is active obedience in yielding to the Spirit and not giving in to the lust of our flesh. So here's how this works. That when you're under the control of the Spirit and you're obedient to Him, you are at the same time obedient to the Father and to the Son. So the way that you come in compliance with God the Father and with God the Son is that you come under the control of the Spirit who gives you the power to obey. Now let's notice for a moment how the Spirit helps us to obey. First is the ability to persevere. Now Romans 8, 
verses 11 through 13. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body that is put them to death, you, ye, shall live. And so the ability to put down our fleshly interest is there. It's in us because the Holy Spirit is there. Your dead spirit has been brought to life. Your dead spirit has been quickened, the Scripture says. It's done, that's done by the power of the Holy Spirit who enables you to live in godliness. And that's an ability that you never had before. It was impossible for you. In fact, your ability towards God is a negative ability. You can't overcome it. Your ability is a negative ability. Your flesh has absolutely no inclination for God whatsoever. All that you ever did for God in your life was push God away. That's the way the world lives. We're always running away from God. You may remember... Uh, some of you have been here for a while. Years ago, I gave an illustration uh, of, a, of an old country boy that wanted to be ordained to the ministry. And he came before the ordination council and they questioned him about his salvation. Now, they were doctrines of grace people like you and me. And they weren't too happy with the recollection of how he got saved. He said, God did his part and I did my part. Well, that didn't sound too good. In fact, that sounded like a typical Arminian answer. And so they asked him to explain that. And then he showed them that he actually did believe the doctrines of grace after all. He said, I did my part. I was running away from God as fast as I could go. And then God did his part. He done run me down. <laughs> and that's what happens. You, you forget about what you did. What you did, everything that you've ever done has kept you away from God. But God's power quickened you. He run you down. And so it's his power that quickened you to spiritual life. And actually it's his power that keeps you living that spiritual life. He sustains you. He sustains your life in Christ. Now what happens in regeneration is that we're given a new nature. Uh, we're given a new holy disposition to the mind. And you can attribute any good works that you do to the Holy Spirit working in that new nature. The Holy Spirit causing that new nature. Now the thing, or causing it to work. Now here's the thing about it. You still have the old nature. We're all familiar with that. We all still sin. And we're commanded to fight that old nature. The Bible says you've got to put that to death. You've got to mortify the deeds of the flesh. And you actually do have the power to kill it. And that power is the power of the Spirit. I'm not sure if this was in... Uh, the new lesson that we have on the Holy Spirit that's coming up in a few weeks. I can't remember. But there was a good illustration in, in one of these lessons that I read. It's, it's that when you get saved, it's, it's like getting a new car. You, you can have a Hemi V8 in that car, but you're not going to go anywhere unless you put fuel into it. The car's just going to sit there. And your Christian life would be just like that. It will sit there. You aren't going anywhere or doing anything for God until you have the fuel to do it. And that fuel is the Holy Spirit. The graces of the Spirit are the fuel that enables you to do all good works. And that's the reason you need to be guided by the Holy Spirit. You aren't going anywhere unless the Holy Spirit works in you. The Bible says that in our flesh dwells no good thing. So you're not going to get anything good out of the flesh. The only time that good things will happen is when you're guided by the Spirit of God. Now, when you live in the Spirit, this is what happens. Romans 8, 13, I read it a moment ago. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Now, have you ever thought about that? What does he mean when he says, ye shall live? What does living mean? What does living mean? Well, living actually means that you're no longer dead, right? You don't do the dead works any longer. You don't do the things that you did any longer. So living is when you can live unto God and do spiritual works that are pleasing to God. That's what life is in Christ. And that life is enabled 
by the Holy Spirit. He gives you the fruits that demonstrate that you are actually alive. Now you think about a dead person. You go up and you kick a dead person, they're not going to move. I mean, they, they don't have any, anything that shows that there's any life there. They have no ability. Well, if you're a Christian that lies there and we come up and kick you and you don't move, you don't get up and do something, if you don't have fruits of the Spirit, the conclusion that we come to is you're dead. You don't have any spiritual life. So if you're a Christian that never produces fruits of the Spirit, the only thing we conclude is you're not a Christian, you're dead. Because this is what Christians always do. They exhibit life. Now, the second thing that the Holy Spirit does for you is that he gives you assistance in prayer. Now, what is the chief thing that holds back your prayer life? I'm speaking to Christians because if you're not a Christian, then the thing that holds back your prayer life is salvation. You don't have salvation. You, you can't even talk to God if you don't have salvation. But what is it that holds the believer back? David had the answer for that in Psalm 66, 18. He said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So the scripture says that it's sin that holds you back. Your flesh holds you back. If you try to pray to God with unconfessed sin, don't think that he's going to hear you because he won't. The Lord doesn't hear you. That's what David says. Now we all have to confess that when we have been living in sin, that sometimes we can become so ashamed of what we've done that we don't want to talk to God. Have you ever felt that way? You get into sin, you know, you know that you're doing something that's not pleasing to Him, and you just don't want to talk to God. And that's when you need some motivation. And you know what the motivation is? That's when the Holy Spirit comes and well, I'm not going to be crude. He gives you a kick, swift kick, and you know where, and gets you going. He begins to chastise you. That chastisement comes from the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, the Father directs him to do this, and the longer that you have a problem, the deeper the problem becomes. And so sin becomes an issue to you, and the Holy Spirit has to work under the direction of Father to straighten you up so you can come back to the place that you can pray. But sometimes... The hindrances to our prayer is not sin at all. It may not even be sin. It might be something has happened in your life. Something has really happened where the grief is so great that you don't know how to go to God. That you don't even know how to talk to God about it. And you know that when you do talk to Him, that what you want to happen may not be in His will. Now, for example, what if your child gets sick? And, and a child is maybe on their deathbed. Well, there's scarcely any of us that would pray, God, take my child. We're not going to pray that way. No, our prayer is always going to be, God, spare my child. And so what we wouldn't want to do, we don't want to add that little caveat that goes along with it, that we say, God, heal my child if it's your will. We're not really concerned about God's will at that point. We just want God to heal our child. Now, that's actually something that comes out of the sinful nature. God knows that we have the sinful nature. He knows when it's very difficult for us to pray as we should. He knows when sin is beginning to control our thoughts so we can't pray like we should. And so, what, what happens? What do you do about that? Well, the Holy Spirit is aware of that. God knows you can't pray perfect prayers. And so, the Holy Spirit is there to assist you and make your prayers acceptable to God. Listen to what Romans 8, 26 and 27 says. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Holy Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, verse 27 there is one of the most confusing verses in Scripture. People argue about this. Who is praying here? Is it us or is it the Spirit? Well, we're not going to tackle that controversy tonight. But I will say this, that the Holy Spirit is there to take over. When all is said and done, the Holy Spirit does whatever is needed to make your prayer a prayer that God the Father will hear. 
He makes it acceptable in the ears of God. And this is why we can read the very next verse, Romans 8, 28. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. We have the Holy Spirit there making these things work out for us. And then you're well aware that the next verses tell us how we got to the point in the first place. That God is working the whole plan through in this golden chain of salvation that stretches from eternity to eternity. Schofield makes a a good point about Romans chapter 8 in the Spirit. And he points out that in the previous seven chapters of Romans, that the Holy Spirit is only mentioned one time. And then in chapter 8, when Paul begins to write about the power of salvation and also about righteous living, then the Holy Spirit just explodes forth in the passage where he's mentioned 19 times. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit is there. All the imperfections that you have are cleared up before your prayers go to God. What does that mean? Well, I don't have to be too concerned about my prayers, that I'll just pray for anything that I want. God will give me anything, even as the Scripture says, consume it upon my lust, just anything that I want. No, the Scripture's not telling us that. In fact, the person that's being guided controlled by the Spirit, doesn't think that way anyway. But what happens is you're filled with the Spirit. He's controlling you. And what the Spirit does, He always intercedes for an obedient child. So when you have those difficulties in prayer, you have someone to help you. You have someone that that takes that prayer to the Father and makes it all good. Well then, the Holy Spirit is God and He's given to us as an abiding presence. And you can imagine that because of that presence... Things change. And now God has expectations. God accepts no excuses at this point. So the second thing that we have to talk about is the expectation because of the Holy Spirit's presence. Now, our text gives us that expectation. It's applied for us. It's the word holiness. Verse 15 and 16, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy, In all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, the Word of God is telling us we don't have an excuse. Now, if you're not saved, you might think, well, I've got an excuse. But neither does the Scripture teach that inherent depravity is an excuse not to follow God. That's not an excuse. But for sure, after you have been saved, you have no excuses. Because God has given you everything that you need to be an obedient Christian. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse number 3, God says that you have everything. It says there, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So what would be your excuse? If God's given you all things that pertain to life and godliness, then where's the excuse? And where's the wiggle room in that statement? So God says... What else do you want? I gave you me. The Holy Spirit lives in you. So where's the excuse? The expectation is holiness. Now let me show you how God demands holiness. There are two levels that are revealed about holiness in the scriptures by the Apostle Paul. And this is in his first letter to the Corinthians. The first of these is corporate holiness. Corporate means as a group and We're talking about holiness on the church level. Now, corporate holiness is taught by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There he says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now, there Paul is speaking on the church level. Now, as a body of Christians, we have to consider the testimony of the church. In the New Testament, church never refers to the building. It's the assembly of saints. The assembly of the saints in the locality where they serve. Now, our locality here is Rohnert Park. So if Paul were to write a letter to us, he would title that letter, the letter to the first, or the first letter to the Rohnert Parkins, or something like that. And knowing us, there would probably be a second Rohnert Parkins and a third Rohnert Parkins as well as Paul deals with all the problems that we have. 
But he's writing to a church. I mean, he's writing to people that have covenanted together in a particular locality that serve God in that locality. A church is people that have covenanted together. Now, we actually have a church covenant. We have a written document that we've made up, and you might not even have known that. So I thought that I might just read it to you tonight, and um, it illustrates the point that I want to make, and it's included with a copy of her listening sheet, so you can follow along as I read this. So we'll take just a moment here to read our church covenant. It says, Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into this covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to give it a sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spreading of the gospel through all nations. We also engage to maintain family and secret devotions, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger, and to abstain from the use and sale of intoxicating drink as a beverage, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. We moreover engage that when we remove from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other Baptist church of like precious faith where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's Word. Now I think that all of us should feel some conviction by reading this. Maybe you've been touched in some area there that needs to be fixed. But that's what it means to live in holiness on the corporate level. Now, this is actually what we're reading here is the success of the church in a nutshell. There's not, there's not a sentence that you could leave out of that document that doesn't affect holiness. Now, do you understand what I'm saying here? This is the corporate level. We are commanded to keep the church holy. So if you thought that, well, this is all about haircuts and it's about clothes then you've only touched a tiny fraction of the requirements. You see, you're not going to fix too much by getting the right kind of haircut and getting uh, the right kind of clothes, wearing the dress a little bit longer, a whole lot longer, which is not to say that some don't need a blanket wrapped around them. But th this is a whole lot deeper than that, actually. These are matters of the heart that we're talking about. Matters of the heart. What, what's right in your heart? Now, there are relational relational problems, relationship problems that exist among church members. There are some that haven't solved the problems, and they don't really care to. And what they've done is they've defriended half the congregation. Now, when you're at war with somebody, and you're not speaking to somebody, you can't help maintain the holiness of the church. Now, there's, there's a lot of stuff that goes on out there. Well, one of the things I'm concerned about, of course, is doctrine. I'm concerned about the support of doctrine, and our... our church covenant tells us there that we are to promote the doctrine of the church. We're, uh, we're to be in agreement with that. And you know that we strive about doctrine. I mean, we're, we're very concerned about what we teach here. We want to teach the truth. And that's why we don't go along with the dog and pony shows and all that kind of thing. We're not interested in that kind of stuff. We want to teach truth. We want to teach doctrine. So what we need to do is we need to study that covenant. Look at it. Decide how you stack up to that. And that's corporate holiness. But there's another level to this, and that's the personal level. Very closely related, and one doesn't work without the other, is personal holiness. 
Now, Paul addresses that in the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians, where he says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, first of all, corporate holiness cannot work without personal holiness. You can't make a clean thing out of an unclean thing. So you can't make a holy church out of unclean people. I mean, the church is the sum of its parts. If the people aren't holy, then the church will not be holy. Now, what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, your body is the temple. It's the temple of God. Why would he say it's the temple of God? Very obvious, because God lives there. The Holy Spirit is in you. So you can't bring unholy things into your temple and not defile the temple. So the unholy things that you see, the unholy things that you listen to, unholy things that you may write, the unholy places that you might go, and even those unholy things that you might drink, they're going to make you what? Unholy. Now, I could go down a long list of sins, but Paul actually supplied us one in the next verses, verses 9 and 10. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now we see all of the sins that he lists, but I want you to notice what he says in verse number 11. He says, and such were some of you, but you've been washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. He said, you were that way. You were in the ignorance of your flesh. That's the way that Peter put it in our text verses. You were in the ignorance of your flesh, but you're not that way any longer. Now the point is, you're not supposed to be that way any longer. You've been washed, you've been justified, and you've been sanctified. So if you're washed and you're justified and you're sanctified, what happened? What happened? How can you live in sin if you're washed, justified, and sanctified? So what we have are a lot of saints that act like ain'ts. They're nothing like Christians. They're still in their sin. And so we find the Apostle Paul in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians where he says there's somebody in the church that you need to get rid of. They're living in sin. You need to get rid of them. And then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 11. He talks about some of you have brought your sins to the Lord's table. And because of that, some of you have died. You're not supposed to be that way any longer. And if you're still that way, then you shouldn't be in the church. Now, if the commands for personal holiness are not kept, what we have is the destruction of the church. So what are we to do? Are we to build up the church or are we to destroy it? Well, you know the answer. Romans 14 says... For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and listen, and things wherewith we may edify one another. Go after the things that edify. Now you know what that means. Edify means to build up. As part of its etymology, it means to instruct spiritually. It means to encourage intellectually, morally, and spiritually. And if you go on reading in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you'll find that not only are we to stay away from the list of sins that Paul mentions, but we're also to abandon anything that's not good for the whole body. That means that there may be something that's not bad in itself, but you ought to stay away from it if it causes a brother to fall. Our Christian liberty, no matter what it is, it's no excuse for division in the church. Now let me finish. I know this is the part you really want me to get to, the finishing part. So we'll sum it up and we'll wrap it all together for obedience. That every part of the Godhead commands you to be obedient. God's not into making suggestions. These are command. So you can't go away tonight and say, well, whatever he said, that's not for me. No, God 
has given you all things that enable you to live in holiness. And holiness, folks, is nothing other than living in obedience to the commandments. Now, he gave them to us. He left us without an excuse. And so we need to think about this. What has God done to us? What has he done to us that would cause us to repay him with disobedience? Have you got an answer for that? What has God ever done to us that we want to repay him with disobedience? Well, you can't find a reason for that. There is no reason. You fall short because of stubbornness and rebellion, and so do I. And so if you're still looking for excuses for your sin, the first thing that you ought to do is go back to the cross and see what Christ did for you. Now, many times there are church members who say or think things like this. Pastor, why are you always picking on me? Why are you picking on my sin? There's somebody else over here, and they do the same or they do worse. Let me just use the words of Jesus at the end of John. He said, what is that to you? What is that to you? And I can paraphrase the Apostle Paul, and uh, I'm paraphrasing. For anybody who accused me of destroying the King James Version, I'm just paraphrasing, okay? You answer to your own master. It doesn't make any difference what anybody else does. You answer to your own master. So who are you in light of Christ's commandments? Are you living for Jesus? You can't unless you're obedient. That's the sum total. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you can't live for Jesus unless you're obedient. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the truths that we've learned from it tonight. Lord, help us to understand very clearly that you as our Father, Jesus Christ as the Son, the Holy Spirit, as the one who lives in us, all of the Godhead demands our obedience. We don't have any right to live any other way. As a church body, we are to live in corporate holiness and our personal holiness that we might promote the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. Lord, help us to live that way. Help us to give ourselves to you. And may we truly live for Jesus in obedience. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.